Hello again. This is our fourth chat about women's suffrage in the UK. What we were seeing last time was that the famous strategies of the panker suffragettes, breaking the law, fighting government candidates at by-elections, had exactly the opposite effect of what was needed to win women's votes. All they did was harden government determination to do nothing about it. Nor did they win anything like enough sympathy among the population, or even among women, to push government by weight of public opinion. What's even more striking, as we saw last time, is that the Pankhurst Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, was moving closer to the Tory party, even though that was the very party least interested in giving women the vote. Strange. So today we're going to look at the terrible risks taken by women suffragettes and their brutal force-feeding in prison. But we discovered that there was a growing divide between the original northern working-class activists who were actually taking the risks and the polite London ladies in silks and satins who funded Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst's society lifestyle. And we ask what the Pankhurst WSPU intended when it changed its motto to, quotes, taxpaying women are entitled to the parliamentary vote. Because if that was what happened, not a single woman in paid employment, except perhaps a few self-employed lady doctors, would have qualified for a vote. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. In her book, The Suffragette Movement, written in 1931, Sylvia Pankhurst, that's Emmeline's second daughter, looked back and accused her mother's organisation, the Women's Social and Political Union, WSPU, of what she called incipient Toryism. Now, what Sylvia Pankhurst meant was that the WSPU had moved steadily into the arms of the Tory party, even though, for most of the period, the Tories were the party that seemed least likely to give women the vote. Now, Sylvia was a lifelong socialist and became very critical of her mother and sister Christabel. But her book has raised a genuine question about the commitment of the Pankhurst to the cause of women's votes. Instead, critics of the WSPU claim, after it moved to London in 1906, the WSPU became an organisation almost exclusively for the rich and comfortable, and therefore probably Tory, ladies of polite society. We might go further. And bear in mind, we're here working mostly with women historians. This isn't an anti-feminist argument. But at one level, it looks to us as though the WSPU had not only become a means of recruiting votes for the Tories, it was also a means of making money. OK, well, let's look a bit closer at all this. Whatever was going on, it was clearly not as simple as transferring the WSPU from Labour working class background to the Tory wealthy women of London. Krista Cowan, among other historians, has been able to show that in the WSPU branches that now began to spring up across the country, there were many working class women. Many of them continued to be associated with the Labour Party. In fact, many of them also belonged to other suffrage societies as well. They didn't draw a sharp distinction, as we tend to nowadays, between the militant WSPU, the suffragettes, and the law-abiding societies affiliated to the NUWSS, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the suffragists. 
It's also true, as Krista Kamen has shown, that many of the young women who were actually employed by the WSPU as organisers, women like Annie Kenny or Theresa Billington, came from working class or lower middle class backgrounds. Their £2 a week pay was about the same level as a teacher. Billington, like several others, had in fact been a teacher before becoming a full-time campaigner. It was pretty good money for a woman at the time, but hardly an entree into polite society. Like Annie Kenny, a few of these paid organisers had been mill girls. Now, in fact, it was these women from poorer and lower middle class backgrounds who were in the thick of the suffragette action. In June 1906, for example, Theresa Billington was arrested outside the Chancellor of the Exchequer's home for obstructing the police. She said she was only trying to stop a policeman mistreating her colleague. She spent two miserable months in Holloway Jail, where in fact she wrote essays in support of militant tactics, with wonderful titles such as The Woman and the Dog Whip. It's very good. And women's, liberty, and women's liberty in man's fear. She only got out when her fine was anonymously paid by the Daily Mail. Perhaps because the paper was missing the headlines created by what it called the, quotes, redoubtable Miss Billington. On the 23rd of October 1906, the WSPU descended on Parliament. They sought meetings with MPs and with Prime Minister Campbell Bannerman. Historian Sandra Holton, in her book Suffrage Days, gives us wonderful detail on these chaotic scenes. A WSPU organiser, another young teacher from a socialist background called Mary Gawthorpe, jumped on a chair and began making a speech. The veteran suffrage campaigner, Elizabeth Wollstonehome Elmy, another ex-teacher now in her 70s, began unfurling a banner. Well, this all began to descend into chaos and there were clearly going to be arrests. At this moment, Mrs Pankhurst somehow fell over, much to the amusement of the MPs. Perhaps as a result, however, Mrs Pankhurst somehow managed to evade arrest, while Gawthorpe Billington, Adela Pankhurst, another daughter, Annie Kenny and five others were carted away and ended up in Holloway Prison until mid-November. When these women, who were mainly from working class or lower middle class backgrounds, emerged from jail, there was a smart reception at the Savoy Hotel. Significantly, although it made excellent headlines, it was organised not by the WSPU at all, but by the non-militant NUWSS. Its president, Millicent Fawcett, had written to the Times during the time they'd been in jail. The WSPU, she said, had already achieved more in 12 months than she had in 12 years. Well, maybe. It was true that everybody, even the Times, was at least talking about female suffrage. But it wasn't true that the Times or anyone else was giving it any more support. Rather, in fact, the opposite. It offers, commented the Times tartly on the women's protest, a very good object lesson upon the unfitness of women to enter political life. Nor was it true that suffrage campaigners were an inch closer to persuading Campbell Bannerman's government to act. But if the WSPU seemed coy about celebrating its poorer members' achievements, it certainly went on putting them in harm's way. Mm. 58 more WSPU women were arrested marching from Caxton Hall to Parliament in February 1907. Most of them were working women from Lancashire and Yorkshire. In fact, two of the arrested were girls aged between 15 and 17. In June, Mary Gawthorpe, who was a tiny, energetic, brilliant speaker, was knocked unconscious speaking at a by-election in Rutland. In fact, she campaigned at seven by-elections in the first half of that year and was so exhausted she had to be taken to Italy by the Pankhurst wealthy sponsors, the Pethic Lawrences, for a rescue. So it's certainly not true that the Pankhurst WSPU turned into a movement exclusively for the wealthy. There were plenty of women from poorer backgrounds, especially in the North. 
In fact, it was these women who we often find on the front line of militant action. But what's noticeable, however, is that most of the London leaders and supporters of the WSPU did not risk being knocked unconscious or going to prison. Or somehow, like Mrs Pankhurst on that particular day in Parliament, they seemed to evade arrest. They met politely and talked about raising money. Certainly in London, where all the major WSPU decisions were taken and where most of the action was coordinated and much of it took place, there can be no doubt that the WSPU changed very significantly from 1906. It became an organisation almost exclusively for the wealthy. something very unexpected about the change that came over the WSPU after its move to London in 1906. Loyal working class and lower middle class supporters from its northern roots were shocked. In October that year, Alice Milne, secretary of the original Manchester branch of the WSPU, arrived at the new London HQ for the annual conference. You can hear her surprise. Quotes, we found the place full of fashionable ladies in silks and satins. The WSPU had turned, she discovered, into, quotes, a movement for the middle and upper classes. Hannah Mitchell, a dressmaker from Ashton-under-Lyme, also came up for the conference. While she sat feeling very dowdy among the London WSPU women in their, quotes, smart frogs. That must have been tough if she was a dressmaker. Theresa Billington remembered coming up to an at-home in London in 1906 or early 1907. She too was shocked to discover a room full of, quotes, fashionable ladies in rustling silks and satins. Now maybe bringing in London's rich and well-dressed was a reasonable tactic. Christabel later wrote that she'd come to believe that MPs are, quotes, more impressed by the demonstrations of the feminine bourgeoisie than of the feminine proletariat. And perhaps she was right. But by 1907, tension between the original northern working-class activists who seemed to be taking most of the personal risks and the polite London ladies who drank tea was splitting the organisation. Theresa Billington in particular disliked the Pankhurst dictatorial way of doing things, so she drew up a democratic constitution to be discussed at the WSPU annual conference in the autumn of 1907. Emmeline Pankhurst's response was abruptly to cancel the annual conference. (laughs) Well, she could have argued that running what became an effective and increasingly secretive outfit couldn't have been organised any other way. Of course, the irony of an undemocratic organisation campaigning for democratic votes was not lost on members like Theresa Billington, an accusation, incidentally, that most of today's political parties would find just as difficult to deny. The NUWSS, the WSPU's main suffrage rival, after all, ran its affairs in a very democratic way. But the result was that in September 1907, the redoubtable Miss Theresa Billington quit the WSPU, along with about 20% of the members. She always maintained that Emmeline and Christabel had picked the fight deliberately because they disliked the attention she was getting from the Daily Mail and other newspapers. Billington and others set up a new suffrage organisation, the Women's Franchise League, with their own newspaper, The Vote. Billington took much of the northern membership, especially in Scotland, with her. And Scotland was a key battleground because a disproportionate number of government ministers had their seats there. Now, some feminists have dismissed Theresa Bennington's criticisms as sour grapes. They should read her. But in fact, it's quite clear that in London, the WSPU's drift 
towards the socially wealthy and politically right-wing continued. However much Christabel would later explain it away as a question of the feminine bourgeoisie, it was, at another level, a simple question of money. Between March 1906 and March 1907, the WSPU raised £2,900 and spent 2494 By then it had grown to nearly 60 branches. In May 1907, it launched a campaign to raise £20,000. Emmeline Pethick Lawrence, who was now the treasurer, privately confessed that they would need to, quote, widen our circle of supporters and reach women of, quote, good position who had that kind of money. Socialist though she was, Mrs Pethick Lawrence was being realistic. A major campaign, now with paid organisers spread throughout the country, could not be funded by Lancashire Mill Girls. The WSBU would have to recruit the silks and satins of London society. It was brilliantly successful at it, but it transformed the WSPU into something entirely different from what it had been, or from what most people still think it was. In 1908, the WSPU changed the motto on its stationery. It went from saying, we demand the parliamentary vote for women on the same terms as it is or may be granted to men, to saying tax-paying women are entitled to the parliamentary vote. Now, historians have not paid enough attention to this. There's something very curious about this announcement. In the spring and summer of 1908, the WSPU put out a statement in successive issues of its paper, Votes for Women, saying that it was demanding votes on the same basis as men as it always had. But then it went on to say, quote, that this means that those women who pay taxes will have the same political rights as men. But these two objectives, votes on the same terms as men and votes for women who pay taxes, are not at all the same thing. No. Research completed in 1904 and 1905 by the Independent Labour Party and by the Women's Cooperative Guild had shown that if women were given the vote on the same basis as men, between 80 and 90% of them would be working class. A parliamentary committee in 1911 would come up with exactly the same result. But according to extremely detailed figures calculated in the 1960s and 1970s by the economist Guy Routh, and this is truly astonishing, votes for tax-paying women would have meant that not a single female employee in Britain would have been enfranchised. Not one woman in paid employment was recorded in these years as reaching the £160 a year threshold for paying income tax. Not one mill girl, not one seamstress, not one governess, not even one teacher. The only women who would have been enfranchised under a tax-paying franchise would have been wealthy women with independent means and perhaps a few self-employed people like lady doctors. Well, which of these two completely different things did the WSPU mean? Pankhurst and other speakers continued to tour the North telling working-class audiences that they were campaigning for them to have the vote. But suffrage campaigner Theresa Billington, who was admittedly a disgruntled ex-leader of the WSPU and a fierce critic of the Pankhurst, claimed in her book The Militant Suffrage Movement, published in March 1911, that the ambiguity in the WSPU's statements was completely deliberate. She called it, quote, a piece of political jugglery from which the WSPU leaders could find several plausible ways of escape. Now, perhaps the Pankhurst calculated that it would be politically easier to win votes just for a tiny number of taxpaying women. Perhaps, as Billington goes on, quotes, they were out to win not sex equality, but any measure of votes for women, any obtainable measure. They were, says Billington, above all, in a hurry to say that they had won something, however meagre it was. 
but it seems they weren't telling their working class members that, and no wonder. Well, what all this means is that from 1908, the suffragettes, WSBU, weren't in fact campaigning for women's votes as we now understand it at all. What they were campaigning for was for taxpaying women to have the vote, and that would have meant giving the vote to only a very tiny minority of the very wealthy. The story about the suffragettes winning the vote for women has begun to look very rocky indeed. What we keep finding is that the suffragettes were either not involved at all at key moments, like 1916-17 when Parliament finally gave women the vote, or, like their by-election strategy from 1906, that their campaigns were in several ways actually damaging women's chances of getting the vote. And now we discover that from 1908, the WSBU wasn't in fact even campaigning for women in general to have the vote. What they were campaigning for was taxpaying women to have the vote. And that would have meant only a very tiny number of very wealthy women. Well, can we believe such a thing? We can. (laughs) Let's take a look at the Pankhurst WSBU's own publication, Votes for Women, its main mouthpiece. It was a weekly magazine sold on the streets from which it raised a good deal of its funds. Let's choose the issue for Friday the 10th of November 1910. In fact, you can see it for yourself if you join the British Newspaper Archive. We give details in our Read More section on the website. Well, the magazine's full of adverts. Now, it's worth remembering while we thumb through them that a teacher's pay at this time was roughly £2 a week. £104 a year. So... Why not spend 10 guineas, that's 10 pounds, 10 shillings, equivalent to something over 1,200 pounds today, on a set of black and Alaskan fox furs? Mm. Uh, Why not buy a Daimler or a Mercedes travelling coat? To match your car. Presumably to match your new motor. (laughs) Or a Japanese silk blouse for 37 and sixpence, that's about 100 pounds a day. Historian Katagina Kajolwek has shown that the Pankhurst WSPU placed a very heavy emphasis on the appearance of its members, insisting that in public they should be finely dressed. Sylvia mentions that her mother criticised the way she dressed, although she always refused to give her any money to buy more clothes. She was so mean to Sylvia. But certainly, if you look at any photograph from the time, you can see that the suffragettes were always turned out in expensive dresses and extravagant hats. The list of advertisers in Votes for Women was headed by smart London shops, notably Heels and Debenhams. Debenhams was only the most prominent and enterprising of many outlets that saw the suffragettes as a major new market. The smart new Selfridges on Oxford Street placed an advert on every single page of the 1913 suffrage annual, a sort of who's who of campaigners for women's votes. These retailers apparently hardly noticed the escalating suffragette violence, even when it was their own windows that got broken. Well, the odd insurance claim was apparently worth it for the rich women they were now able to attract. Much more important to them was selling hats, gowns, coats, shoes, even underwear in suffragette colours. Purple, green and white. Historian Jane Chapman has argued that what the Pankhurst WSPU was in practice delivering was a niche market for advertisers among the well-to-do. It was a market that had previously been very difficult to reach. And let's not forget that Mrs P had spent some time running an unsuccessful interior design shop of her own and that the WSPU opened their first shop in Charing Cross Road selling all manner of things from a board game where you had to reach 10 Downing Street 
bone china tea sets in WSPU colours and votes for women cigarettes. Well, if you go on leafing through votes for women that day, 10th of November 1910, you confirm the impression that whatever was going on in the relatively few WSPU branches now left in the north of England, this had primarily become a club for rich women who lived in the south. Oh, here's Miss Florence E. Smith. She's writing from Paynton, which was then rather a smart resort in Devon, that she had luggage labels printed in WSPU colours. Uh, she'd had them done to affix to all my baggage going out to India on the 25th instant. Oh, and she had ordered two copies of Votes for Women to be posted all the way to Calcutta. Oh, she placed one of them in a library. Back home, there would be a whist drive in Peckham. A jumble sale in Kensington and Battersea. A debate in Chiswick. A drawing room meeting at Forest Gate. Notices of WSPU activities around that time list 31 in London and the home counties and just 21 in the whole of the rest of the country. In fact, there were separate notices of 88 meetings listed in private houses that forthcoming week just in London. And perhaps there they would discuss the articles in Votes for Women, including those with French headlines, such as Aux Armes and C'est surtout sur la veille d'une révolution quand la croix impossible, which readers were expected to understand without any translations, just as you are. Reading these pages, it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that Votes for Women was the mouthpiece of an organisation which had no place at all for mill girls or domestic servants. Now, as we saw in our last discussion, this extraordinary shift towards the wealthy, which a number of members wrote about at the time, went hand in hand with a strategic WSPU move towards the Tories in Parliament, even though the Tories were for most of this period the least likely party to give women the vote. Above all, such a move toward the Conservative wealthy was going to do nothing at all to achieve the WSPU's central objective, which was to persuade the Liberal government to give women the vote. It's either yet another strategic blunder or a bit of a mystery. It even makes you wonder whether underneath all the bluster and noise what the WSPU was really all about, at least at one level, was, well, as we've said, making money. By 1911, the WSPU was maintaining a headquarters in an expensive part of London, all 27 rooms of it, and employing 110 women, most of them living and working in expensive London, on £2 a week, which was roughly the same wage as teachers. Now, what historians haven't pointed out is that, according to Rath's research, in 1910, £104 a year, £2 a week, was among the highest incomes for female employees most women were earning less than half that amount. What it means is that WSPU was a well-oiled, well-dressed, but also very well-paid operation. It needed to be extremely good at raising funds. And with its new rich clientele, it was. Its income in 1906-07 was just under £3,000. In 1909-10, it was just over £33,000, including £5,664 raised from a women's exhibition, selling expensive clothes, confectionery and other items at a venue in Kensington to the strains of string quartets. Now, there's nothing wrong about raising money for a good cause. Or string quartets, for that matter. But what is disturbing about all of this is that it was the Pankhurst who seemed to benefit most of all. Christabel was taking about £130 a year from the WSPU. At various times, Emmeline Pankhurst's sister and two of her other daughters were also employed. 
Indeed, Adela Pankhurst was the only daughter who'd earned money for herself before joining the WSPU. What exactly Mrs Pankhurst herself was being paid is impossible to discover. But when her husband died in 1898, he'd left her no money at all, and she'd had no other source of income. Before 1906, she'd earned a meagre living as a registrar of births, marriages and deaths in Manchester. But from 1906, when the WSBU moved to London, Emmeline Pankhurst lived at the Inns of Court Hotel. Now, this was an extremely smart establishment on Lincoln's Inn Square. It was described as having, quote, the highest decorative pretensions, starting with perhaps the finest hotel hall in England, extending on through its Masonic Hall, Grand Dining Room, Ladies' Drawing Room and bedrooms all lit with electric light. It was, it boasted, within a shilling's cab fare from almost all the London theatres. Well, it kind of come cheap. Around this time, by way of comparison, the Strand Imperial Hotel, which wasn't far away, was charging five and sixpence a night for bed and breakfast and nine shillings for full board. Now, that was more than one and a half times a teacher's entire pay for the day. Now, of course, we could say that Mrs Pankhurst was living a hectic life of lecturing, protesting, and as we shall see, spending some time in and out of prison, although unlike everyone else, not being force-fed. But it was most definitely not normal for leaders of suffrage societies to make a significant living out of their campaigning. Elizabeth Wollstonehome Elmy, probably the greatest campaigner for women's issues to have been completely forgotten, campaigned relentlessly from the 1860s almost until her death in 1918. She'd set up her own Women's Emancipation Union in 1891 and served as its secretary. She went on to become one of the WSPU's most active and prominent and least remembered supporters. But Elizabeth Elmy refused to take payment for what she did and lived in considerable poverty, alleviated only by occasional gifts from a so-called Grateful Fund set up by her admirers. You can look her up, along with other now-forgotten key suffrage campaigners, in Sandra Holton's book, Suffrage Days. By 1909, Emmeline Pankhurst was touring the United States, appearing in front of vast audiences decked out in velvet, emeralds and pearls, and charging huge fees, which may or may not have been passed on to WSPU funds. Now, maybe that strikes you as a cynical observation, but by the time Emmeline Pankhurst returned to the States in 1913, American suffragettes boycotted her meetings in protest at her eye-watering demands for cash. (laughs) And they complained that the money was being taken away from the American suffrage campaign for the benefit, they said, of the tribe of Pankhurst. (laughs) Fact is, it's difficult not to come to the conclusion that at one level anyway, the WSPU had become a money-spinning operation, and some, at any rate, perceived it to be a cash cow running rather too much for the personal benefit of the Pankhursts. From 1912, Christabel Pankhurst, far from chaining herself to any readings in London, and there's no evidence she ever did such a thing, was living at a series of extremely expensive apartments in Paris. It's hard not to come to the conclusion that the WSPU was at least as much a way of making money as it was of getting votes for women. And that fundamentally changes the way we need to understand Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst and their campaign. So from the time the Pankhurst and the WSPU moved to London in 1906, it changed. 
from a socialist mill girls campaign which struggled to pay for postage stamps to something entirely different. Targeting the rich women of London and the home counties, it soon employed a large and extremely well-paid staff. Emmeline Pankhurst herself moved into a smart hotel and decked herself out in emeralds and pearls. Christabel moved to a series of expensive apartments in Paris. And the message of the movement quietly changed. What Mrs Pankhurst did not tell the mill girls and ex-mill girls whom she lectured and employed and naively motivated to go to prison and on to hunger strike was that the organisation was no longer trying to win them the vote. It was only trying to get the vote for the wealthy few of independent means. Now all of this throws an entirely different light on the famous militancy of the WSPU. Most other suffrage societies went on sending well-behaved deputations to meet ministers and campaigning at by-elections in an effort to keep women's votes at least somewhere on the government's to-do list. We've already seen that in 1905, 1906 and 1907, the WSPU had mounted an increasingly aggressive series of protests, which led to a number of arrests, especially of its less well-to-do members. But from 1908, the Pankhurst WSPU's campaign of disruption became increasingly militant. On the 8th of January that year, 1908, Olivia Smith and Edith New chained themselves to the railings at 10 Downing Street, while other WSPU women tried to sneak in and confront the Prime Minister. In February, the WSPU hired a large furniture van and drove it into Parliament's courtyard, where the doors opened and out poured a van load of suffragettes. On the 30th of June, Edith New and Mary Lee collected some stones from St James's Park in London and threw them through the windows of 10 Downing Street. In 1909, 294 campaigners were arrested and 163 of them imprisoned. One of them, Marion Wallace Dunlop, was thrown in jail in June 1909 for writing on the wall in Parliament a quote from the 1688 Bill of Rights. It is the right of the subject to petition the king and all commitments and prosecutions for such petitioning are illegal. Agreed. Then Dunlop went on hunger strike. She wasn't protesting at being put in prison, but at being kept there as a common criminal and not as a political prisoner. Until 1908, suffrage protesters had been kept in what was called First Division conditions with their own clothes, books and visitors. But after that, they were treated as criminals, put into often filthy prison fatigues and made to work. Protesting about not being treated as a political prisoner was another tactic that they'd learned from the Labour Party in the 1890s. But Dunlop's hunger strike was something entirely new. It lasted 91 hours until she was hastily released. Other suffrage campaigners quickly followed, refusing to eat, 36 of them by the end of the year. In August 1909, the King, Edward VII, who was on holiday at Marienbad in Austria, sent a message to the Home Secretary Herbert Gladstone. In it, he suggested that these hunger-striking women should be forcibly fed. Well, the Home Secretary quickly complied. The result was a series of brutal scenes in which women and some men were forcibly fed by tube several times a day through every possible orifice, and I mean that. It left many of them permanently scarred. It very quickly became one of the WSPU's most successful publicity campaigns because doctors protested that the practice was really dangerous and women compared it with being raped. For once, public opinion was on the campaigner's side. Now, all of this belongs, of course, to the well-known suffragette narrative. Brave women risked their health and freedom in order to bring women's votes before the public. It was often brilliantly conceived and carried out. 
Whether it was well calculated to convince the government, we'll consider at a later discussion. But before we do, we should notice something else. Like everything to do with the Pankhurst, this campaign was never quite what it said it was. Late in 1909, a WSPU activist known as Constance Lytton was arrested in Newcastle. She was, in fact, Lady Constance Bulwer-Lytton, daughter of a former Governor-General of India, sister-in-law both of future Tory Prime Minister Arthur Balfour and of the great arts and crafts architect Sir Edwin Lutyens. When she got to prison, the authorities treated her with kid gloves and she spent much of her sentence in the prison hospital on account of a heart condition which the prison doctors had cleverly detected and which she'd had since childhood. In January 1910, Constance Lytton was again arrested for protesting, this time outside Walton Jail in Liverpool. Well, it became one of the most famous incidents of the entire suffrage campaign because Lytton wrote a best-selling book about it. This time, Constance Lytton had had her hair cut short and badly and dressed herself in cheap clothes, even down to her underwear. She'd bought a cheap and ill-fitting pair of glasses. This time, when she was arrested, she gave her name as Jane Wharton and claimed she was a sempstress from London. This time, the prison authorities threw her into the third division, where she went on hunger and thirst strike. This time without any proper medical examination, they force-fed her, until her sister, the wife of the architect Lutyens, turned up, told the governor who she really was, and took her away. Although Constance Lytton lived to 1923, she never recovered from this. By August 1910, she'd had a heart attack, followed by a series of strokes which paralysed her right side. Now, this is a shocking story on any number of levels. The brutality, often casual and gratuitous, of the prison staff was scandalous. The catastrophic effect it had on Constant Lytton's health was very far from an isolated case, and all the more outrageous for that. The class bias of the whole justice system was utterly shameful. But there's something else. The most significant point about the Constance Lytton case for the historian of the suffragettes is that she'd had to lie about her status in order to get the prison authorities to treat her the way they treated the other suffragette activists. The point is that the other militants, the ones who were making all the headlines because they were being force-fed, came, with a few well-known exceptions, from the working poor and lower middle classes. Nothing had changed from the early days when the WSPU had a much more mixed membership. It was still women like Edith New who took on the dangerous work. She was the daughter of a railway clerk. She'd been a pupil teacher starting at 14 and working the hard way into the teaching profession by learning on the job. Or Mary Lee, who was also a teacher, married to a building labourer. They were the ones who were bearing the personal cost of the campaign. Rich London lady suffragettes like Constance Lytton were normally immune from risking this kind of treatment. Even if they did get involved in militant action, the worst that they would usually expect was to spend a few weeks in a prison hospital. And yet, without saying so publicly, it was for these rich women WSBU was actually campaigning to win votes, not the poor. Emmeline Pankhurst was arrested 14 times and said she'd gone on hunger strike 12 times. But Pankhurst also claimed that the prison authorities had tried to force-feed her only once and that she had fought them off with a water jug. Well, in the light of Constance Lytton's account, it is exceedingly unlikely that she could have fought them off. 
other prisoners witnessed to being fed with extreme force at least four women prison officers tying them down and pushing tubes up noses or down throats, taking advantage of missing back teeth to prise their mouths open. Emmeline Pethick-Lawrence, although she'd married into a family of MPs, was forcibly fed in the same prison at the same time that Emmeline Panker said she was scaring the warders with a jug. Well, perhaps it was because Mrs Pethick-Lawrence had a reputation as a socialist. More believable is the treatment Mrs Pankhurst received on her first imprisonment in 1908 in Holloway Jail. She often wore the medal the suffragettes gave her afterwards. It still exists. It shows that she'd been given a cell in the hospital block. Now, that was much safer. So the suffragettes' increasingly militant campaign was not entirely what it seems. Here was an organisation that was campaigning only to get votes for rich women and was happily collecting tens of thousands of pounds from the well-to-do of the home counties. But it maintained its public profile, its appeal to those smart ladies in their drawing rooms, by sending mostly poorer women to prison, where, as the WSPU perfectly well knew, they would be brutally treated and force-fed. In 1910, Mary Gawthorpe raised a loud complaint. She wanted to remember the brilliant little speaker from Yorkshire, one of the WSPU's most popular, whom we saw being arrested at Parliament and later knocked unconscious at a by-election. In 1910, Gawthorpe protested that unknown women were being jailed over and over, quotes, until it kills them. The implication was clear. It wasn't the well-to-do leadership who were suffering, quite the reverse. It was the poor women whose health and lives were being destroyed. In 1911, like Theresa Billington before her, Gawthorpe quit the WSPU. But the donations from wealthy women in London and the home counties kept pouring in and kept Mrs Pankhurst and Christabel, neither of whom suffered brutal treatment in prison, in the considerable style to which they were now accustomed. And in terms of winning votes for women, it was getting absolutely nowhere. In fact, it was doing rather the opposite, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. History Cafe.